If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a state sale. I'm Lori Lattimore-Volkman, and this week begins a multi-part series on being Black in America, and we'll highlight a fantastic conversation I recently had with two of my former students when I was teaching at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Jamila Fraser, a prosecutor in Atlanta married with two daughters, and Foley Texan, a software engineer in Atlanta working at Google. I confess that I first had the idea to bring them on as guests the way too many of us white people remember to include Black people in our lives. During February, when our country decides it's okay to give some attention to the people and culture on whom America was built. But my idea was not to do the, let's talk about historically great black Americans, but to really focus on the black experience now by talking to two currently great black Americans. Since they're former students of mine, I have to brag on them a little bit. Both worked with me on the student newspaper at Mercer called The Cluster. Yeah, go ahead and laugh. It's terrible name. And they were often writing columns that brought us a little bit of administrative attention, which those of you who know me, this is exactly how I like my student newspapers. Jamila was a journalism major and an activist, and she put both to excellent use by attending law school after graduation. Now her oldest daughter is following in her footsteps by writing powerful words for her school newspaper. And Foley wasn't even a journalism major. He was hanging out in the engineering halls, but had a lot to say. So he came on board to write a column known as Angry Black Man. It was so fun to reminisce with them about those days at Mercer. But more than that, it was super enlightening to listen to them talk about what it's been like growing up Black in this country, coming of age in the 90s, when probably most of you, like me, kind of assumed life was fine for African-Americans because it was fine for us. And if we've learned anything in the last year, we have learned that is the absolute wrong prism to be looking at the black experience. So even as soon as just a couple decades ago, these two were facing discrimination in their schools and in their cities. And this should not be a surprise to us because the events of 2020, specifically the deaths of innocent black women and men have proved to us this was obviously their experience. This has obviously been going on for a very long time. In this first segment, we mainly talk about their lives growing up Black, how they felt about the past year, and sadly, why they aren't all that optimistic about things changing for real. But Jamila made an excellent point that we'll delve into more in the second episode, which is, for real equity to be possible, it will take the people who benefit from white privilege working alongside people of color to actually change this country. As you listen to this, consider what it must be like to always be in the minority, to always be the person who's different, to always be the one who knows that their color of skin is dictating a lot of assumptions before they even have a chance to prove themselves. Thank you, Jamila and Foley, for a wonderful conversation. Even though you know me, was there a party that's like, uh-huh, 
the white girl's asking about us because it's Black History Month, right? So here we got to we got to talk about this. <laughs> no, only because it's you, and I I felt like I knew you well enough to be like, oh, this is you know comes from a good place. Yeah, yeah I mean there, is, there are some people I'd probably be like, eh, like why? But I would say the same thing that it's it's you. So it wasn't a oh man, well what's going on here? <laughs> it was more so of uh, it was more so of like mm, man, what type of shenanigans is Lori got going on now? What does Dr. Black do? Always, always <laughs> shenanigans, always. And I think that's part of the conversation in itself is the fact that, like I said, you know, before there was a certain list of professors and people that you know everybody knew, like uh, all the black students on campus knew that. Okay, well. I'm going to get a fair shake with this professor. There was a network of teachers, black teachers and teachers that were like, you know what, they're not black, but they're cool to work with and they will they won't unnecessarily, you know, be tough on you. They'll treat everybody in the room equally, like no yeah. matter what. Because we're here, so you know you didn't make the short list. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to know that. I always felt like I was in tune to this to the issue, but not not as woke as I should have been, or as white people should be. Um, I know, I know, I'm too old to say that effectively. But I definitely feel like this past year there was a lot that I even became aware of, just in terms of truly the systemic racism that has been existing for decades, centuries that we really haven't talked about. We, we've talked a lot about civil rights and this, that struggle, but we haven't talked about how it's actually really deeper than that. I'm very curious sort of how you grew up with that, knowing it and probably realizing it's not something you can actually talk about or bring up easily because too many white people don't know. Was there a particular incident you remember growing up where you realized, honestly, for the first time, other people would see you as different? Not so much whether you had learned about racism, but where you actually felt like you experienced it in action. I moved to Georgia when I was in high school. The first time I actually experienced racism wasn't in Georgia. It was in San Francisco. An Asian guy uh, who profiled me and told me to get out the store. And when I knocked over the chips, on my way out the store, <laughs> he called me the N-word. I was like, well, the par for course. And yeah. I mean, how I old like, were you? Uh, 12, 13. I was like, okay, here we go. For me, I've always lived in Georgia and I was a really big reader. And so I think kind of knowing some of my parents' stories, my family's roots are really in Georgia. Like my parents, my grandparents, feel like I've always known. I grew up first in South Coast and then we were in Fayetteville. And Fayetteville at the time was Lily White. My brothers who are 10 and 12 years older than me were like, they started the high school and they had come from an all black school to like a Lily White school. So when I was in elementary school, it was fine. But once I got to middle school, I had like significant problems with the administration. A story that I always kind of talk about, we were in seventh grade, we went to Washington, D.C., and we had five hours to spend at the Smithsonian Museums. But instead of going to the African-American Museum, they spent two hours at one museum. And so I asked the teacher, because at that point I had started seeing the differences of how they would treat us. Can we please go to the African-American Museum? I'm really interested in that history. They refused to let us. And then when I came back, they told my parents that I was banned from going on field trips without them coming along because I had asked this question and I had pouted when they said we couldn't go. But 
there was a white student who literally stole from the National Mall and was let out in handcuffs that was able to continue to go on field trips. That was like the first time that it was so blatant into that middle school. I felt very much black. One of the things that made it easy for me is that my parents didn't necessarily encourage me to go against the grain, but they were always supportive. So if I came home and had gotten put into in-school suspension, which was a regular occurrence because I would try to organize sit-ins and just all this stuff, they would be supportive, which allowed me the ability to continue to do that. Seems to be that the age of 12, 13, that's when that really that light or it's made obvious. And unfortunately, that's when you go for young black men, that's when you go from the cute little boy to, oh, he's a threat now. I'm 6'1", 6'2". I'm actually one of the shorter people in my family. So we were taught early, growing up, hey, you're, you know, you're big, you're dark skinned, uh, get a receipt when you walk out the store. Uh, don't lollygag, buy what you need to buy and get out of there. Don't run from the police. They come, they ask you questions, sit down, put your hands on your lap. I want to say like after the age of eight or nine, I didn't even have toy guns. Specifically because of the image that your parents thought it would portray? Yeah. yeah. Like there was a lot of things that I grew up knowing early. And like I said, depending on the source or the person that I was talking to, I may have come off either hostile or militant. It's almost like you get to a point where like a bully is picking on you and you get tired and it's like, you know what? I may lose this fight, but I'm not going to not fight. That's kind of where you get to at that point. My husband and I have known each other since elementary school. And so when I told him we were doing this podcast today, we kind of talked about our middle school experiences and how they were different because he was much quieter than I am. And so it was kind of like the person who was always speaking out like and drawing attention to this stuff. They really, I feel like, tried to beat down my spirit. It was a rough experience, but I think that as Black people, sometimes we're taught to either like not necessarily stay in your place, but you can kind of know that if you go and blend in and not talk a lot and not fight, then they'll leave you alone. That's never really been my personality, but it also cost me like you know, I'm sure some opportunities and stuff in middle school. So it's always that sacrifice in deciding whether or not to speak out or to just, you know, go with the flow. My son had to watch um, the Ernest Green story for class the other day. I actually worked for Melba Patilla Fields, who was one of the Little Rock Nine. Um, and so I, I knew the story a lot more from her, t- you know, talking about it you know, in her personal experience than I did from Ernest Green. But anytime I watch movies like that or just any documentary that kind of highlights a lot of the specific experiences during the civil rights movement, I'm always struck by that very thing. Like part of the struggle was, you know, these in these situations, let's say the Little Rock Nine, for example, they're going into a very hostile environment with you know troops outside you know white people picking on them beating on them and they know that if they fight back they're the ones getting kicked out and so like they actually had to really not just swallow their pride but 
even allow themselves to be harassed and beaten just so that they could be the example, I don't think most of us even can really recognize how hard of a position that is to be in. Because most of us, if we are pushed, we're fighting back. Just your natural human instinct is to fight back. And when you have to fight that natural instinct while you're also being physically beaten, but certainly psychologically beaten, it's an impossible task. And that's a hard way to grow up. And you didn't even have the fact that it's a, a, a national conversation so much at that time. I feel like at that time, most people were like, well, what else do you want? Kids are in school with everybody. Don't mind the fact that they're still not really learning their history. Don't mind the fact that the teachers are still treating them differently. But you're here. Shut up and take it. Like, there's nothing to continue to complain about. To some point, yeah, we, it was silent because it's just like everybody felt like the job was done. But I think what we've learned this year or what I've always known and I hate to say it, I don't think I'm going to be alive <laughs> to see like actual equality. I think we are still a very long way away from that. Yeah, I agree. Because we grew up in an era where the Cosby's were on TV. So, it <laughs> so was like, black people had everything they could have wanted, right? <laughs> yeah, it was just like, oh, they're all right. They're good. I'm like, no. Parents got divorced. I grew up in a single parent uh, household with my brother and my mom worked two jobs, struggled. I did some things in high school I can't really expound on here. <laughs> no judgment, but it's probably better if you stay quiet. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not gonna speak on that. I understand that people growing up now, I understand that people grow, do things and put themselves in a position because for no other reason is there there's a lack of resources. There are things that they want, they want to be able to do, have nice stuff. And you see the depiction of Black people on TV and Dr. Huxable is a doctor. His wife is a lawyer. They live in this amazing brownstone. And it's like, that's not Black America for everybody. Unfortunately, like Jamila said, okay, well, we let you in your schools. Listen, you know, we've got two or three black kids in the classroom. Like, what else do you want? Like, seriously, <laughs> chill out. Like, man, come on. What, what you want? Fried chicken, too? Like, oh, actually, I do like fried chicken. But that's <laughs> so my mom finished her degree when I was in middle school. My dad graduated from Morehouse. I was in a two-parent household, at least middle class, maybe upper to middle class. But it didn't matter. They still treated me like crap. They called the police on me after trying to organize a city. Like the only reason I was not led away in handcuffs is that my dad beat the police to the school. Like it did not matter. And my parents were very involved. Like they saw my mom and my dad up there all the time. And it didn't matter that, you know, they had done the right things. <laughs> and right. that they tried to, you know, they moved their family to the suburbs and to Fayetteville to a good school system. All they saw was there's a black girl who's not going along with the flow. And I just think that seeing things like the Cosby show, which I loved for what it did, it made us complacent. And so I just, I don't know. So looking back now, like where you are now, and especially after the year we've had, if you think back to some of those people, teachers, other adults that did treat you differently and, and looked at you as just a, a black kid and you were lesser in their mind, do you think it was an overt racist ideology that they had or people who think that just because they know black people they can't be racist or just because they don't say the n-word they must not be racist but they don't see all the ways that they keep alive racist thinking that goes into keeping us so you know so divided 
I like my racist up front and in my face. <laughs> like, be <laughs> racist to me and let me know who you are. Those are the dangerous racists. <laughs> the ones that think that they are anti-racist. I know that's the term we throw around or that they like black people. Right. Every person at my school who did that to me, I think would sit here today and say, what? I've never been racist. I have this black friend named blah, blah, blah. Like we actually had a teacher tell us that. We told on him because he told a black joke. And he was like, well, I tell that to my black friends all the time and they all laugh. What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They they laugh because they know if they beat you up, they're going to jail. (laughs) Uh, And moving from California and being taught the way that I was taught by my mother to always ask questions, uh, be very inquisitive, have a thirst for you know knowledge. That's the reason why I read a lot and that's the reason why I talked a lot. <laughs> but this teacher, she thought that I was slow or that I didn't understand the class material because I would ask her a thousand questions because she had a very thick Southern accent. My only influences of hearing people speak were the, the crisp, clear Californian way of speaking and my mother's and my father's African accents, only for them to give me a test and put me in a gifted program. And so I say that to say that, uh, yeah, I, I think that she would not feel like, okay, she was being racist, but more so like, if anything, she would admit to being um, naive. Yeah. High school teacher I had that I used to get into it all the time with, he said and did things that were not only racist, but like just inappropriate. I'm in 10th grade and I would speak out and I'd say about 5'10", but growing into my size and playing football. So I'm a pretty big high school kid to them. Yeah. And I would speak up and I would say something and it'd be immediately, Foley, take your books, get out of here. (laughs) Mr. Texas, get out of class. And I'm like, for what? Well, you're not going to disturb my class today. You're not going to, you know what? I am. Let me flip these books up on my way out. (laughs) (laughs) You were organizing sit-ins. What were some of the causes? Were they race related or they just? Oh, yes. It it was all race related. (laughs) When we were in middle school, at one point, there was like a big water fountain, a small water fountain. And somebody, of course, went and put a color and a white sign on that. The administration did nothing. This is like 1990s? Yeah, so we started high school in 96. Not to interrupt Jamila's story, but that was very commonplace in the 90s. You shake your head, but I I'm remember- just, I'm appalled. <laughs> I'm appalled. And I remember clearly playing football against schools. Like we played against this private white school. We're beating the brakes out of them. We're being called everything under the book. <laughs> it's funny, Foley, that you, that you kind of mentioned football. And I'll, I'll finish answering your question too in a second. I give my husband a hard time because he played football all through high school. And I was like, you had a different experience because black athletes are special. <laughs> like in schools that were like mine, they're special. You know, oh, you're yeah. the good black. you're bringing notoriety to the school. Like, you know, his mom had a scrapbook of his articles. I was a smart kid, but I was not like, you know, <laughs> like I didn't play a sport. I wasn't doing anything to get us any shine. And I think that that was part of it. But to go back to the question, so it was the, the white and the, the colored water fountain. We tried to have like a peace rally. I mean, tensions were just so high. Um, tried to have a sit-in for that. We tried, we used to be able to go into the cafe, the gym after we had lunch. That was like a big eighth grade privilege. 
our year, they shut it down because again, the tensions were just so high. Like if I didn't know that I was living in the nineties, I felt like you could have taken us back and put us like, if the schools were really integrated and put us back in the sixties. And at least for me, some of my experiences felt like that. Yeah. But again, it depended on who you were at the school. My best friends, my husband, they, I mean, they saw this stuff, but I just was not the person to, to just be like, oh, that's messed up. Like I needed to talk to somebody, like we have to draw attention. <laughs> I know I shouldn't be shocked. I know I should, I do know better. I know the South, they've been, <laughs> they've been troublemakers forever. Um, forever. <laughs> and I was in college when the Rodney King verdict came out. And I imagine you guys probably remember that because that, you would have been in those years, right? That would have been early middle school. Was that kind of where some of the tension started? Was it just tension because it was just the South and white black relations were just tough? That, but my husband always talks about when the OJ verdict came out, we were at school and he said he remembers like all the black people like, woohoo, he got off and the white people like, and so um, I feel like, you know, back then we were so young. Like I didn't know enough about the story to know if he did it or not. Right. Like, oh, oh my gosh, a black person won. That's just what right. it felt like. Yeah. I mean, and that's honestly true because I honestly, I was one of those kids. I was running through the hallway. The juice is loose. The juice is loose. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny because I had a um, social studies teacher who was sometimes a little naive and, you know, his thoughts, but he was very open in dealing with everybody and kind of giving everybody an play, even playing field. We watched the verdict in his class. And I remember running out the hallway, the juice is loose. Yeah, baby, we won. Just yelling, just cutting up. And then, you know, the next day, he and I actually having a conversation to the side with uh, a couple of other students. And I flat out told him, I said, you know, honestly, evidence looks like he was guilty. But the fact that <laughs> he yeah. got away with it, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. And since we, recently that I'm like, oh, he did that. He probably, he, I don't know. He, he has, like, I now feel he has something to do with it, but who, I didn't care then. Like, I mean, right. I was just like, we won something finally with what felt like losses. And then, you know, you go on and see Rodney King and all that. It just, it was good to, to feel like we had won something. In L.A., which at the time, I I feel like, and you know, sometimes the timeline gets blurry in my head, but I remember seeing the Different World episode after Rodney King's verdict and really starting to like dig in to the LAPD and learning more about them. I actually wrote like my, one of my law school papers on it, just kind of feeling like he won in California and sorry for saying this. And he killed white people. Like that doesn't happen. I am not offended. <laughs> okay. yeah. But I say that because like, I do care that lives were lost. So I'm not right, like, right. but just the fact that how is a black man capable of getting off on something like this? As a black man that he got away with this, it was like, what? Are you serious? Kind of speaks to your point earlier too, Jamila. Part of the reason he got off was because he was a celebrity, a famous football player. Had he just been a regular black man, no way, right? No way he gets away with that. Yeah. No way. I mean, quite frankly, if he was not a celebrity, he might have been dead before he went to trial. Like, just, just to be quite I mean, honest, like, there may not have been a trial. Yeah. I was just like, wow, you know what? I need to be rich and black. I can do anything. 
why I always have to explain to people because I just feel like as a black prosecutor, people <laughs> are like, ma'am, you're on the wrong side. <laughs> like you want us on all the sides so that I can make sure over here that cases are prosecuted fairly and that it's not discriminatory practices or do my best, at least with the cases that I handle. But I just think as general with the distrust of the justice system, fairly, by Black yes. people. <laughs> right. Like Black prosecutors, it's like, no, why are you locking folks up? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a, another good segue. Speaking of wrong place, wrong time, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, a couple months later, in the case of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, there's video. So there's evidence staring people in the face of the injustice that we have had. It's right there front and center that these white cops, the white justice system, the white people in these scenarios are doing things they know are clearly wrong. And even knowing there's video there, believing that they are not going to be found guilty because there has been no experience in their world of being found guilty. So my question for you guys is when you first heard about those in particular, because they got national attention. What was your emotion first? And then how did you deal with being talked about nationally in the media? For me, it was kind of like, oh, they done killed another Black person. I mean, that was like my initial reaction. Right. Um, but hurt, um, really hurt because my oldest daughter takes stuff like that hard. I know enough about myself at this point that I don't watch the videos because I can't like it, it, it hurts too much just to know. Mm-hmm. But I think she actually, I think it was the Ahmaud Arbery video. She stumbled across the video and, you know, just crying. And it's just kind of like trying to look at your kid in the eye and explain to her like why ever, but even in this, in this day and time that somebody could hate so somebody just because of the color of their skin, particularly in the Ahmaud Arbery case, because this is not, a police officer. I mean, George Floyd was horrible too. He so, committed the crime of, of running while black. Well, right. <laughs> yes. And like, how do you tell your children that you'll be safe? They had made a decision not to charge them, but for the pressure of the community, they were just going to get away with it. And it's such a double-edged sword for me because I'm a prosecutor wanting to tell black people, at least try to trust in the justice system. But every time you do that, like you look up in cases like Ahmaud Arbery and then George Floyd, like all of these things, which seem very simple to me, take too long for them to make a charging decision. Right. And they don't always make the right one, like Breonna Taylor. Um, and so I just kind of feel like it, it's hurtful, but like for me, it's all too commonplace. They all hurt, but I'm never surprised, which is probably one of the saddest things of all, that we're just used to it. A lot of the white people who, you know, coincidentally enough, went to those schools with me. So, <laughs> I mean, I should have not been surprised. Um, oh, he deserved it. Oh, um, you know, you should always listen to the cops. If you were just, if you just follow the law, like why didn't he stop when those guys were pursuing him in a truck? Hell, if two white men are following me in a truck and tell me to stop, I'm not stopping either. <laughs> I've seen that go bad way too many times. So, right. I, I'll be honest with you. I need to see full uniforms, full ID, I need to see a list of documentation for why I should stop because otherwise I'm not stopping. In the case of Ahmaud Arbery, it really hurt me because really when they posted his picture, it looked like my brother. And I cried because 
that's something that I worry about with my brother being in a mostly white suburban neighborhood up in Minnesota. He's a very active black guy. He's six, four, big dude, muscular guy. So he goes out of his way to make sure that people know him and know who he is. It's frustrating that you have to go through so much to let people know that you're not a threat just to do normal everyday things. It's frustrating. It's frustrating because like Jamila said, it's just one like uh, another dead black person, unfortunately. What was very, very heartbreaking about Ahmaud Arbery's case was the fact that that was literally going to get swept under the rug until finally they just released the video. Because like for whatever reason, one of those goobers were dumb enough to send it over and say, hey, well, you know, this is what we were trying to do. So here, check out the video. And this video was so damning and so over the top that anybody, anybody, I'm like, anybody with common sense would see, oh, what? Yeah. What? Logical people can't misread it. Logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the case of George Floyd, that really seemed like that was a malicious intent. And that's one of the other things that's frustrating about George Floyd, because people basically are saying, well, he committed a crime. But let's just say, I don't know that I believe that, that, but let's just say it was forgery. Since when is forgery punishable by death? Since when does a police officer get to be the arresting officer, the judge, the jury? (laughs) Even if he had done that, that is not an appropriate response. Even if you place this man under arrest, but to just sit there, again, I haven't watched the video, but but just to sit there and literally squeeze the life out of somebody over a potentially a forced twenty dollar bill is a callousness that is mind boggling. I mean, because it's not even a misdemeanor. What that that's less than a hundred dollars. Like I mean, let's say he had it was eight thousand dollars. Like <laughs> like I just don't know that any type of money forgery, like there's not a death sentence attached to this. There's nothing in any of our laws that says the police officer should kill him. Unless, right, he is trying to kill the police officer and it's an act of self-defense. That is it. Or somebody else. Right. And I brought the money up because, like I said, it's not the fact the amount of money. It doesn't matter how big or small or what we do. The punishment is always death. If that was a white person, there is no way on God's great earth (laughs) that it would have turned out that same way. Like no, probably way. they no wouldn't way. have even gone gone and looked for him. You know, maybe a citation. Maybe a citation. I was about to say the worst that happens is a ticket. And all right, listen, don't come here to the store again. For the people who know me and who have been around me, who are really close to me, my friends, both black and white, they know that there's two different Americas. There's two different ways that things are carried out, and it's really kind of frustrating that. It took something like this for the 40% of America to move to like maybe 70% of America that now understand this. Maybe. Being maybe. With your numbers. <laughs> we move from like maybe what, 20% to like 40, 50% if you want to be realistic. Just well, thankful for body cam because that's the only thing in that case. I'm thankful that there was a video of Amada Arbery um, because without those two things, nothing would have happened. Both of them really do hurt. But unfortunately, it almost feels like another day, another dead black person by the hands of 
you know what I'm saying, police or white America. What do you do? What do you say? Can you sit here and, I mean, I tell a lot of jokes because honestly, if I don't tell jokes, I'll go back to being an angry black man. As the information came out and then protests started being organized and a lot of cities were starting to get involved, you know, it felt positive. There was this acknowledgement by, you know, whatever percentage it was fully, it was clearly white people who are already sensitive to what a deep-seated problem this is. I doubt you got any racists to go, oh, wow. No. <laughs> We've no, been really please. racist. <laughs> but, like, man, this is, this is just way too racist for me. I got to stop. <laughs> right, that's no, right. No, 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 that but didn't happen. There were some gains, even though it's not enough. And then, of course, it dies down just as we were getting uh, back into to normal everyday life in the COVID year. But then... We have an insurrection at the Capitol. Thousands of racists causing a riot and an insurrection and a, a coup attempt. All of them were basically turned and let go, you know. And then even after they were trying to arrest people, they'd they'd go find them and arrest them and they'd be in jail for two days or not at all. That was a very, very stark comparison of that systemic racism that we we pretend doesn't exist. Black people get pulled over for a traffic violation or just a racial profiling, you know, just, just because you couldn't be black and be driving that car. So let me pull you over and find some excuse. And they get shot and killed. White people actually try to overthrow our government and they get to go on a Mexican vacation. When you think about that, does it make you angry? Does it make you disappointed? Does it make you like just another day in the life of a black person? A little bit of anger and just another day for us. So I don't know if you saw on Facebook, we actually participated in some of the protests this summer with my mm -hmm. oldest daughter. And, um, you know, we were met by tanks. People might have been arrested after we left, but none of that happened while we were there. Right. But they were so ready for somebody to like tiptoe out of line. We marched to Pont City Market. Like tanks are out there. They were guarding that. So to think that there was a huge presence to stop us from getting into Pont City Market. <laughs> But these white folks just busted through the Capitol. It's like, it's, it's mind-boggling and crazy. You know, all of the rhetoric from the, the other side was, I mean, look, you BLM people, you're just destroying your cities. I mean, y'all are crazy. That's why right. blah, blah, blah. looting, all that. Just setting ablaze your, your cities and businesses. They broke into the Capitol. I mean, oh, you know, that was Antifa. That wasn't them. I'm like, Lives Matter really wanted to carry that Confederate flag. <laughs> and like, I have really just had to like take giant steps back. And my husband's always like, why are you arguing with this, this person on, on Facebook? My husband does the same thing. Stop it. Why are you doing that? You're just going to make yourself mad. I'm like, I'm exactly. already mad. <laughs> right. Because I realize really people I'm arguing with, they're never going to change. So I'm like, I know that I'm wasting my breath, but some stuff I cannot see. Like the people who were like, I mean... No, black people could have done that too and not, if we had tried to bust into the Capitol, there will be several hundred dead black folks. Right. <laughs> and several hundred in jail. I'll say this. My fraternity uh, celebrated their 100 year anniversary in DC, 2011. Oh. And there was a pretty prevalent police presence there. Well, it was a good time and nobody got rowdy, but it was just like, hey, we letting you know, we got our eyes on you. And right. whereas, you know, hey, you know, I'm sending a message, an email as I'm a white guy, 
MAGA lover, whatever, you know, sending an email to my buddy, the fellow MAGA lover. Yeah, we're going to go down there and tear that thing clean apart. Go on through that. No problem. <laughs> yes. Part of your, I don't know if this was going to be a question, but one of the things I think is interesting is that you talked about the gains that were made. You know, my daughter goes to a private school in Buckhead, predominantly white school. I'm sure maybe y'all are aware, I don't know, because I'm not sure if it was everywhere, but there were all of these like black or black at whatever institution pages that popped up on Instagram over the summer. A lot of black students anonymously coming out about their experiences. But we were actually kind of just talking about it today that like what I think some allies tend to do is say, okay, what is it that we can support you with? How can we support you? You know, they talk a good talk. They, you know, they want you to think that they're there. A couple of months go by and it's just like, okay, we've calmed down the black people now. <laughs> we can go back to what we were doing before. That's why we always end up back in the same place. It takes people who benefit from the privilege to work alongside of us to change it. And they will work alongside of us again until they feel like we're pacified. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, everything's good again. They'll go away. <laughs> Another black person will die. People will get all up in arms. And they'll be like, wait, we're back to help you. And that's it. The reason why there was so much movement and so much uh, visibility as to what happened was because it happened during COVID. People had nowhere else to go. You had nothing else to do but to watch that and look at it. True. And because of that, I felt that that's the reason why there was so much action. So honestly, I was like, hey, appreciate you, COVID. Hey, you know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you COVID for exposing racism and really putting it on a large scale. More that we get back to normal, the more that this is like, eh. Black people can't do that. And that's the thing. Because they're not sitting at home, as Foley said, with nothing to do like all of the promises, all of the strides, I just don't feel like it's a continuous work. And so even with what's going on at my daughter's school, like all of the, you know, they did some stuff, but not nearly enough. It's kind of like they had a little mini mester this year, which was African-American classes. Yay for that. But will it be there next year? Probably not. Has there been a change in the overall curriculum? You know, we send our kids to some of these schools or like we pay this tuition for her to get a great education partially because of the inequity in the schools, like the schools that are in the Black community, you know, same times when we send our, our kids to these schools, we sacrifice something. We sacrifice, like my daughter, really having like the, the Black social experience or any social experience, really. Um, right. We sacrifice her dating because there's like three Black people. Um, <laughs> we sacrifice her like Hanging out with her I'm friends. I'm sure her father's cool with that sacrifice of the dating. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's like, Easy. we're going to keep her in an all-girls, all-white school for a <laughs> yes, while. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's like cool with that. You don't even get to hang out with your friends, though, you know, because we don't live yeah. on the same side of town. And so yeah. you sacrifice yeah. a lot of that stuff so that your kid can get the education. But then you also have to realize that the disparities that, that they see, like... Not only is she at like a, a white private school, she's at a very affluent white private school. Right. So like disparities that she sees amongst like, you know, some of the richest, I would say some of the richest families in Georgia, Arthur Blank's kids. The high school is named after Arthur Blank. His kids went there right. um, compared to, you know, like maybe what her community looks like. And you have to, you know, kind of have to wonder what does that do to one's psyche, especially when all this stuff is going on this summer and you look around like, where, where's your safe spot, especially when the administration 
at some of these places. I feel like put on a good song and dance only to get the parents to shut up and so that they can really continue about business as usual. Just back to the point of the games that we were talking about. I've seen it all <laughs> before, I feel like. Like you said, we've, we've seen it all. We've seen them. When we start talking about making real changes, uh, systemic changes, changing laws, when we talk about putting these changes to make everybody put everybody on the same playing field, it's like, wait, wait, hold on now. Hold on. Like, you know what? We gave you guys a month, mm-hmm. gave you a couple of cool t-shirts. Right. Like too far. <laughs> you know, don't, 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 don't hold on now. Hold on now. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy. Because America is better than this. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us on a state sale. I want to say I hope you enjoyed the conversation, but honestly, I hope it made you feel a little uncomfortable too. Uncomfortable in knowing that those of us with privilege haven't done enough. Talking about the importance of America's black heritage one month a year is not good enough. Going to a couple of protests is not good enough. Being sympathetic to the cause is not good enough. Ranting on Facebook is awesome, but still not good enough. Figuring out what is good enough is part of what we will discuss in the future episodes, and I hope you'll come back for those too. Thank you.